Um, before we, we get into it, you, you're probably aware of what's going on in Israel with the attack from Hamas and the retaliation from Israel. And I just want us to pray for them. A lot of people ask me, you know, is this, is this the sign that the, the end is coming? And it's like, well, we don't know. It's a sign, right? What did God, what did Jesus say? You're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. These are the beginnings of birth pangs. And what do birth pangs do? They get more rapid, and they get more intense. And this is a pretty intense one. But all they really do is they tell us, hey, the baby's getting closer, right? So we don't know exactly when that is, but it's a reminder to us that God's got a plan. He's going to wrap everything up, and we need to pray. So if you join me, let's pray for the conflict, the people over there. Lord, we do. We lift up the people in the Middle East and all that's going on. Lord, we pray for those who have been taken captive or those who've injured, Lord, that you would free the captives and you would heal the injured. You would comfort those who are mourning. Lord, we pray that there would come peace. We know the only true and lasting peace comes from you. We pray you would bring peace. You'd bring peace to the region, but especially, Lord, you'd bring peace to people's souls. Lord, help people realize they need you May, they, may many come to know you through all that's going on in this area. Lord, work, we pray, protect your people. And Lord, may your people worldwide remember, may they see in this a reminder that you've got a plan to wrap up the, this age and bring in the age to come. And may we be ready for your return. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Anybody, who, what are you here for tonight? Are you here for instruction? Anybody? Yeah? Are, are you here because you need encouragement? Yeah. Are you here because you need hope? Okay. You know what the scripture says about those things. Do you know which scripture talks about those things? Let me read it to you really quickly. We're not going to stay there. But Romans chapter 15, verse 4 says, Whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. What's he talking about? He's talking about the Old Testament scriptures. So the Old Testament scriptures were written that we might be instructed, that we might be encouraged, that we might have hope. Now, a lot of people have trouble drawing those things from the Old Testament scriptures, but that's where we're going to go tonight. We're going to go to 2 Samuel chapter 3. And I hope not only will you find instruction and encouragement and hope here, but you'll also hopefully see a little more clearly how we draw those things from these Old Testament scriptures. So 2 Samuel chapter 3, and let's begin with prayer. Father, thank you that we can gather together this evening. Lord, what a blessing it is to worship you with song to enter into your presence, to sense you meeting with us. Lord, it's just an incredible privilege to know you. But we want to know you more, and we want to worship you more, and we want to worship you not just in song, but in how we respond to your word. And so we pray, Lord, that we would attend to your voice tonight, and that we would respond to it in faith in a way that will please you, in Jesus' name, amen. Second Samuel chapter 3, verse 1. 
Now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and David grew steadily stronger, but the house of Saul grew weaker continually. So we're, we're jumping in, we're diving into the history of the nation of Israel. And at that time, Saul had been the first anointed king. He was chosen as king partly because he looked kingly, right? It, it kind of sounds like America. Let's vote for him because he looks presidential, right? Well, Saul's tall and handsome, and he was kind of humble to start out with, um, but he turned away from the Lord, and he was eventually rejected as being king. And when you read through all these passages, you realize that I think behind the choice of Saul was really God showing the people, this is the king you get when you get what you want. But here's what I want. I want a man after my own heart. And so David was anointed king. And when Saul died, well, is David made king? Well, only over his own tribe. Remember that Israel, uh, Jacob, who was renamed Israel, had 12 sons. David was from the tribe of Judah. So the tribe of Judah followed David, but the other tribes didn't. They followed one of Saul's sons, the one who survived, and they followed him because, Dave, because Saul's military commander set him up as king. And so when that happened, there's a civil war. Now, we're in a, a situation where our society is fracturing, and you wonder, well, will we come to the point of having some kind of civil war? Makes you think. But when you step back from that, you realize there's a civil war in this universe because there's a war of, of, of Satan against God. And when you think about that, you realize there's frequently a civil war going on in our own hearts, isn't there? There's a civil war in our hearts because our hearts are often divided. We want to worship God but we find ourselves doing things we know we shouldn't, thinking things we know we shouldn't, not believing things we know we should, and, and there's temptation and there's trials, and we find that we're not really united in heart serving the king. So when you think about that, keep that kind of in mind as we go through this passage. So at this point in time, this, this long war has been going on. David has been growing stronger the house of Saul, his, his son and his army and those who are following them are growing weaker continually. Sons were born to David at Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon by Ahinoam the Jezreelitess, and his second, Kiliah, by Abigail the widow of Nabal the Carmelite, and the third, Absalom the son of Maacah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur, and the fourth, Adonijah the son of Hegeth, and the fifth, Shephatiah the son of Abital. And the sixth, Ithrim, by David's wife, Eglah. These were born to David at Hebron. Now, close your Bibles and take out a piece of paper and a pencil. No. You don't, have to, you don't have to know these things, right? Sometimes people don't like to read the Old Testament because, hey, I can't pronounce the names. Well, do I really know how to pronounce the names? Sounded good. But I've had years and years of practice, and you really don't know if they were right or not. Right, because what's going on? You're taking a name in Hebrew and you're translating it into English and, you know, Hebrew pronunciation, English pronunciation, which do you use? And they've changed over time. You know, if you read the King James, get one of those Bibles that has a pronunciation guide, get a new one, they're different. So what I recommend is just 
Just go through it. Just do your best and don't let that intimidate you because that shouldn't keep you from reading the Old Testament, should it? Really shouldn't. But the interesting thing about this is, why is this here? Why is this here? Right? We're, we're talking about a civil war. We've, we've introduced the subject. We're going to pick it up in verse 6. And then there are these four verses about David's sons. Why is this here? I wonder if it's because it's a foreshadowing of the civil war that's going to come to David's house because his sons are going to fight against each other. That's just my guess at this point. You know, from time to time, we see these genealogies inserted, and, and a lot of times we just skip over them. But why is it here? I think that's a good question to ask yourself when you're reading. So anyway, that, uh, that aside, we go on with the Civil War in verse 6. And it came about, while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, that Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul, himself strong in the house of Saul. The house of Saul is supposed to be led by Ishbosheth, Saul's son, who is ostensibly the king of Israel. And yet, while this is going on, Abner is making himself strong. I remember one time I, I had taken a job, and uh, I asked them, you know, do I, do I get business cards here? And they said, sure. Go talk to the receptionist at the front desk, and she'll arrange them. So I go to the front desk, and I talk to the receptionist, and I say, uh, what do I have to do to get business cards? And she says, well, just tell me your name and, and what you want on them. What I want on them? Yeah, tell, tell me what you want on them. You mean I can have anything on them? She said, yeah. I said, I want to be called the power behind the throne. <laughs> she laughed, too. That didn't go on my business card. I thought you said anything. No. But that's what Abner's doing here, right? He's gathering the power. Ishbosheth is going to be a puppet king, not a real one. Abner's going to hold the reins of the kingdom. So he's making himself strong, even while the house of Saul is growing weaker. Verse 7 Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Now, <clears throat> there's more behind this probably than meets the eye. Because typically, when a new king would take over for an old king, all of the old king's possessions would become the new king's, including the old king's concubines. Well, is Abner the new king? No. Ishbosheth is the new king. But Abner's taking the old king's concubine. And so it's, it's almost like him saying to everybody, I'm the real power here because I've got the king's concubine. And so that offends Ishbosheth, and he confronts Abner over this. And Abner doesn't have a real happy response. Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? Now, if you ever want to cut someone down and you're looking for a creative term to use, you can call him a dog's head that belongs to Judah and see how they respond. But he says, Is this a, Am I such a despised thing? Today I show kindness to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not delivered you into the hands of David, 
and yet today you charge me with a guilt concerning the woman. See what Abner is, what's going on in his heart? He doesn't see himself as guilty here, does he? You charge me with a guilt. I haven't done anything wrong, and yet, according to the social conventions of the day, that was pretty wrong. But he doesn't see it. Now, does this sound familiar? Have you ever, have you ever known anybody, ever talked to somebody, and it's very clear they're doing something wrong, and yet they just can't see it? I mean, this happens in the mirror all the time, doesn't it? We are blind to our own sins, and Abner just doesn't see his guilt. So he's defending himself. And then he says in verse 9, May God do so to Abner, and more also. This is a, a way that they would, in a sense, bring a curse upon themselves. If, as the Lord has sworn to David, I do not accomplish this for him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and to establish the throne of David over Israel and over Judah, from Dan even to Beersheba. That's a powerful speech. He's saying, look, that's the last straw. I am now going to make sure David becomes the king over the whole country. But did you catch what he, what he put in there? He said, as the Lord has sworn to David. You see what that means? That means that Abner knew this whole time that God had chosen David to be king. And yet, and this, this war went on for years, six and a half, seven years. Abner is doing what? He's doing what he knows is wrong because he's fighting against the king that God has chosen. He's fighting against the king that God has chosen. Now he's finally going to do what's right. Is he doing what's right because he's repentant? No, he's doing, he's doing what's right. Good role model for us. But he tells this to Ishbosheth, and in verse 11, and he, Ishbosheth, could no longer answer Abner a word because he was afraid of him. Yeah. He's the military leader, and he's a strong leader, and Ishbosheth is not a strong leader. Ishbosheth is in a very vulnerable position, and so he can't say a word. Then, verse 12, Abner sent messengers to David in his place, saying, Whose is the land? Well, that's a good question, isn't it? Whose is the land? Well, it's God's land, right? And God can give it to whomever he wants. And in fact, you read through the Old Testament and the promises about the land, and again and again, it becomes clear that God claims ownership of the land and gives it as a stewardship to whom he will and takes it away when they fail in their stewardship. But Abner thinks the land belongs partly to David and partly to him. Whose is the land? Make your covenant with me. And behold, my hand shall be with you to bring all Israel over to you. So Abner is basically offering a covenant to David. Let's make a deal. You make a deal with me, I'll bring everybody over to you. And, and Abner has to do something like this because if he just goes to David, um, he's going to be thought of as a spy or as a traitor. He's got he's to make arrangements to do this. 
So verse 13, and he, David, said, good, I will make a covenant with you, but I demand one thing of you, namely, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see me. Now, Saul had two daughters, and he told David that he could marry Michael if he brought him a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. In other words, you have to go out and kill a hundred enemy soldiers and bring their foreskins back. Wonderful picture. Um, and David brought back 200. But what was Saul doing? He was trying to get David killed, right? Just go, go out into the battle, and, and if you can kill 100 soldiers, I'm in trouble. Well, he kills 200. So David married Michael, and then he, when he had to flee from Saul, Michael stayed behind. And yet David considers her stuff. Does this sound like modern culture? Just messed up. But what, what's David saying? This is the condition on which I'm going to make a covenant with you. I want my wife back. And commentators speculate that part of the reason is David wants to establish his right to the throne as an heir of Saul because he's the husband of Saul's daughter. Don't know if that's true or not, but it's an interesting thought. So David makes this condition. And then in verse 14, so David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife, Michael, to whom I was betrothed for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, from Paltiel, the son of Laish. But her husband went with her, weeping as he went, and followed her as far as Bahurim. Then Abner said to him, Go, return. So he returned. This may give a little more clarity to why later Michael despised David in her heart. It's sad. It's just a sad part of the story, isn't it? And, and there may be some foreshadowing here of what's going to happen with David and Bathsheba and David's son Amnon, Amnon and his half-sister Tamar. A lot of messed up relationships in David's family. Verse 17, Now Abner had consultation with the elders of Israel, saying, In times past you were seeking for David to be king over you, now then do it. For the Lord has spoken of David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. And Abner also spoke in the hearing of Benjamin. And in addition, Abner went to speak in the hearing of David in Hebron, all that seemed good to Israel and to the whole house of Benjamin. So Abner makes an appeal to the people. So look, it's time. Let's, let's unite the kingdom under David. But that's not exactly how he put it, is it? Isn't it interesting how he worded this? He said, in times past, you were seeking for David to be king over you. Remember, David was the leader of Saul's military until Saul drove him away. And the people greatly respected him for his faith in God and his confidence and his victories and how brave he was. He was just highly respected, and people thought this, this would be a good king. And probably a lot of the nation, when Saul died and his son Jonathan with him, thought David should be our king. And yet David had been chased out of the country. He was in exile and so they probably just went along with Abner saying, okay, well, Ishbosheth, okay, whatever. But probably a lot of them in their heart 
wanted David to be king. In times past, you wanted David to rule over you, to be king over you. Now then, do it. In other words, the time has come. Make David the king. Make David the king. Now, when you look at certain passages in Scripture, there's something in Scripture that's called a type. Now, when I was young, there was this really cool invention called a typewriter. And the really cool thing about I mean, nowadays, you know, if you want to print something out, what do you got to do? Go to your computer, boot your computer, log into your computer, open your word processor, type in your document, print it out, send it to a printer, go over to the printer and make sure it's got paper in it and pull the paper out. And then you've got, in the old days, you just put your paper in your typewriter, boom, there it is. I mean, how much more efficient is that? As long as you never make mistakes. But what happens in a typewriter, for those of you who are too young to remember, the typewriters, old typewriters, had these arms with this little piece of originally lead with a, a carved image of a letter or a symbol or a number on it. And you would press a key, and that arm would go whack, and it would hit a little inked ribbon that was close to the paper, and it would leave an image of whatever that thing carved on that little piece of lead was It'll leave an image on your paper. Now, that little piece of lead was called type. Type. So whenever you saw the image on the paper, you knew that that little piece of lead had lead. And that became very important sometimes in, in solving crimes because they would look at the, you know, the ransom note that someone had typed up and they would say, look, you know, this letter the type is broken a little bit. There's a little bit missing here. And so they would watch for other places that had that letter messed up in that same way. But why is this important? Because in the New Testament, when it talks about the examples in the Old Testament, it uses the Greek word for type. From these examples, from these types we gain encouragement and hope. So when we see something like this in the Old Testament, we don't just read it and say, oh, that's a cool story. You know, I like stories. I, I, I like this story. We look for it, and we, we look at it, and we say, is there a type here? Does what God has caused to be recorded in Scripture, does that reflect some deeper reality that has left this image, that God has caused this image to be left of. And, and what do we have here? We have someone whom God has chosen to be king who isn't king yet, or he's king over part of the nation, but not all of the nation. Now, there's, there's more to this picture because when David was chosen, do you remember how that came down? God told Samuel the prophet, I want you to go to Jesse from Bethlehem, and I want you to anoint one of his sons king over Israel. Anoint. The king was the 
anointed one. The one who was going to be king was the anointed one. If you take that word in Hebrew, it's related to the word Messiah. The Messiah is the anointed one. When you translate that into Greek, you get Christos. The Christ is the anointed one. Jesus, the Christ, is anointed to be the king overall. Does this start clicking now? See, he's chosen, Jesus is chosen to be king over this whole universe, which includes not just the countries, but the people, which includes us, which includes our hearts. So when our hearts are divided, and we have, in essence, said, okay, Lord, you can be king over this part of my life. You can be, how do we start? You can be king over Sunday mornings from this time to this time. Okay, you can be king over Thursday nights. I'll go to church, I'll sing, I'll, I'll listen to the scripture. And, and what is God saying? All. I want all of you. I want to be king over all of you. And haven't there been times in your life when that has become crystal clear to you? And you've recognized that the reason my life is not what it should be is I have not let Jesus be king over all of me. I have resisted his rule. I have maintained this civil war, holding back from the king that God has anointed, the one to be king over all. Did you hear what Abner said to the people? In time past, you wanted David to be king over you. You were seeking that. When we in our hearts are seeking for things to be right in our lives, what we're really seeking is for God's will to be done. What we're really seeking is for our lives to be fully ruled by the Lord. In times past, haven't you wanted that? Well, what does Abner say? Now then, do it. He's telling the people of Israel, look, it's time. Don't fight it any longer. Don't resist it any longer. Yield to what God's will is here. Make David your king. And, and they did. But that's the exhortation I think God wants us to have. Jesus is the perfect king. Haven't you recognized that when you've tried to do what you think is best as opposed to what God thinks is best, your basic life, isn't that the essence of the first temptation in the garden? You can be like God. You can make this choice on your own. You don't need God. And again, again and again, down through the ages, isn't this the problem in our souls that we sit on the throne of God instead of allowing him to sit there? And the more we do that, the more our lives get messed up. And God graciously allows that to happen. Why? So that we'll wake up and we'll see, oh, I've been ruling my own life. I've been thinking I knew better than God. I've been thinking I could be the judge of myself. I could set the laws for myself. I could make the rules. 
I could run my own life. It doesn't work. It just doesn't work. We are designed by God to be in submission to the king he's chosen. Haven't you wanted that? Maybe not clearly seeing that for what it is, but in our hearts, God puts this desire to be right with him, to be in submission to him, to let Jesus rule in our hearts and lives. Now then, do it. God waits for us to just say, okay, yes, Lord, I'm ready to surrender. I'm ready to submit. I'm ready to yield my whole life to you now. Let's pray. Lord, you alone are worthy to be king. You alone are qualified. You alone have the power to do all things, the wisdom to know what's best, the love to want to do what's best. You alone are qualified to be king. Lord, we've tried so often, so many times to rule our own lives and have only failed. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for thinking that we could sit on your throne. Forgive us, Lord, and open our eyes to what we need to see so that we will yield fully to you. Lord, you're king. We're not. Rule over us. Starting right now, be our king. Take your rule over our whole lives. And may we live in such a way that we please you and we glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen.